This is KCLR's Bottom Line with John Purcell. Brought to you with thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants, the Southeast's largest independent accountancy practice. www.omf.ie um, You're all very welcome. So uh, I was casting around, Brian, when he asked me to do this, said... Uh, well, the first edition will talk to you. The second edition, you can bring somebody along, and the third edition, you can. Uh, we'll have a chat with you and a member of uh, Carlow Chamber Board. So I was kind of um, uh, casting around for who I could talk to, and then the thought occurred because he he was in my mind uh, a guy that I'm delighted to know for some years, who I met when he worked in uh, Communicorp, who up until very recently. Uh, ran News Talk, or may still do, but they won't for much longer. It's been bought by Bauer, the German uh, media company. But the guy is Aidan McCullum. And uh, when first I met Aidan, I went, great, somebody who's around my height. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm uh, uh, tall enough and of the type that people are usually asking me. I don't know if they ask you, Aidan, what's the weather like up there and all that kind of stuff. So... Aidan is a former professional rugby player, um, but the one thing about professional rugby is that uh, the clock catches up with people and injuries and so on. But Aidan uh, has just released a book which is very apt for the times that we're in, and the book is called uh, Undisruptable. Um, and it's just out a number of weeks, and it's on the theme of a mindset of permanent reinvention for individuals, organisations, and life. And Aidan also, we were talking about recordings, also uh, does a podcast called The Innovation Show, where he speaks to authors and people who are in the whole uh, area of innovation. And I think the bookshelf that you'll see behind him um, uh, features all the books whose authors he's uh, interviewed on the show. And so I thought Aidan would be a good guest. Um, and so I'd like to welcome Aidan McCullen. Aidan, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Delighted to be with you. Yeah. So tell us, um, it's kind of topical. I only realized yesterday, um, your first, I suppose, post-secondary um, school gig, as far as I know, was playing <laughs> professional rugby. Um, was it just the case of a meteoric rise through the ranks that your talent was just spotted when you were about 11? Or just tell us a bit about your rugby career. Far from it, John. I, um, I stumbled stumbled into uh, rugby i i was i was genuinely one of those kids that was was either last picked on the playground or picked early onto the other team so they'd lose and everybody kind of snigger when they got me onto their team so i was that kind of kid and um for many years i i'm from meath so so i have a very rich heritage in gaa no interest in in rugby at all i don't i don't have any rugby in my family in any way and what happened was I we moved up. My father became superintendent of the Phoenix Park. So he renovated the park from the kind of dangerous enough place it was in the 80s when we moved up there. And he renovated and restored it to his its, its uh, beauty. And we lived in the in the park there. And the closest school was Casanoff College, which was a rugby playing school. And I went there at great with great anger against my parents for sending me there because I had these dreams of playing GAA, even though I wasn't picked, by the way. (laughs) And uh, so I was kind of lucky in a way because I I was forced to play. Even when I went there, I I still I mean, even when I left at 18, I still didn't really have a clue what I was doing. 
But around 16 or so, I just got it in my head that if I was going to do this thing, I might as well give it a go. And when when most of the my my very talented friends discovered alcohol, I discovered the Graw for sport and I just put in the work. And while they put in the work in the pub, I put in the work in the gym and we went on different paths. And then there was, and you know, luck is so important with everything. I When I was 18, there was a first major tour for the schoolboys, the Leinster schoolboys to Australia. And there was a 44 man tour. And I was number 44 on the list. The coach told me at the end, he said, we just put you in because your school did well this year. <laughs> and then I came back and I got man of the tour. And again, it was just persistence because a lot of the lads over there just went drinking. Some of the guys who went drinking got injured. I ended up playing every game of the eight match tour. We did really well. We were unbeaten. And then when I came back, they were like, put, put your man into the Irish Academy as a wild card. And then it just went from there. I, I pulled a few levers on the way, John. I went to Dax when I was 21. Dax is a place in the southwest of France. The reason I went there was because I did French and German in college. It wasn't because it would be at all. But I managed to get a contract, a professional contract. So my Erasmus year that was meant to spend learning French ended up being learning French, yes, but also got me into professional rugby. So it was a circuitous route and one well, that was the time that the, the two guys from the club were there discussing your contract with you, <laughs> Mr. Man over from Ireland there. Uh, just tell us that one. Okay, well, you'll think I'm a total chancer now. So I, I what, what had happened was I, I, I went to Trinity and a guy there was a mature student in my class and the student, um, he was about in his 50s. He, he was an amazing French speaker and, he, and I wasn't. And he's like, I was like, oh, how did you get so good? And he's like, well, I traveled there a lot and I, I go over and pick the grapes and all this kind of stuff. And I was there going, well, I'm not going to be doing that. And uh, he, he ends up giving me a copy of a newspaper. He says, you should read this every so often. It was L'Equipe, the French sports newspaper. And it was open on a page. And the title of the page was Dax en crise, which basically means Dax in crisis. And it was about this story of this club that had lost all their players. And a light bulb went off in my head. And I was like, that's an opportunity. I asked around in Ireland who had ever played in France, what rugby players played in France. Two had ever done so. One was my for former coach. So th these are the kind of looks that bounce the ball that goes for you. So I asked him, he got in touch with the president of the club who he had played with against serendipity. So he wrote to him, I get a contract, I go over. In the meantime, over the three month period, the guy who was the president of the club had died. So may he rest in peace. And I arrived and these guys didn't have a clue who I was. I was there with my bags and they're kind of, and I had no contract signed or anything like that, showed up with goodwill. And they bring me into the office and the secretary of the club is like, well, we have to get the new president down. And I was like, okay. So luckily he lived about half an hour away. I waited there in the office, twiddling my thumbs with all my bags. And they come along. And I did, by the way, I didn't tell them I spoke French. So along comes the president. They start chatting away about me. And every so often they're speaking in fluent French. Every so often they'd look to see, does he understand? And then they'd keep continuing. They were discussing a contract they were going to give me or, or not. And then they're like, we'll give him the crappy apartment up there on that street or that street. And, and then they kind of looked at me, go, did I understand? And I just played dumb. And um, eventually then they come to a decision. They make me an offer. 
and they say what do you think so in broken english they say it to me and i and i res responded in french about why why did you say about that and why did you why why don't you give me the better apartment <laughs> and they were like they're looking at me and they're like yeah little <laughs> french word and uh, they gave me a much better contract as a result so it was very very lucky that i hadn't revealed my french language yeah now Aiden, um it reminds me of a business book, I think, by Jim Collins, you'd know better than me, Good to Great, where he, he studied different companies and he says everybody gets the same amount of luck, but really um, it's about picking up on, on good pieces of luck and taking advantage of it. It sounds like you've kind of got a good eye for an opportunity. You went on and uh, had a very successful rugby career. Um, you played for Leinster, you played for Dax, as you said, London Irish, and also Toulouse, who I, I think was around the time when they were last in the European um, uh, Champions final, or my rugby knowledge isn't too great. What would you say you learned from your rugby career that's kind of helped you in business and, and so on? Well, it's, it's a funny one, John. A lot of, a lot of uh, rugby, um, call them player, a lot of players, uh, when they when they retire, they they believe like I did that you have no skill. Like so when I retired, it was 2008, 2009, I, I applied to a newly formed Google. There was very few employees in Ireland at the time, and I couldn't even get an interview. And, you know, the the kind of they were going to take a punt on you or they weren't, etc. And it was like, well, what can you do? And I was like, well, I can pass off both hands. And um, you discover later on that you develop these very human skills that are really important like teamwork collaboration resilience i mean you get you get essentially judged every week publicly and sometimes when things don't get, go well the judgment is quite severe so you develop that but the most important thing and you alluded to it john at the start was the the necessity to retire early because i was i was 31 and i didn't need to retire but I felt the time was right. I'd lost my love for the game and I decided to retire. And the willingness to go and retire and reinvent yourself became this kind of pattern that repeated for me time and time again. When you kind of feel you've got to this growth curve, to the top of your curve, it's time to go again and build new capabilities, etc. And I was lucky because two years before I retired, I was injured quite a bit when I was in London Irish. I didn't really feature very much there. I was kind of fit for six months of the 24 months. And I'd been constantly studying, seeing what was out there, what opportunities are, were available. And that kind of mindset has remained with me since this idea that you're, you need to constantly develop skills, but also you need to constantly feel you kind of have this kind of like uh, divining rod for when things come into its end and and when it's coming to the end it's time to go and reinvent yourself again so that's been a very valuable mindset that that's come from rugby yeah and and so that's what you really do now you work in the whole area of innovation reinvention and so on you have a number, number of strings to that particular bow tell us about first we'll talk about your work with companies and 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 your uh, other work, you know, as a as a change consultant. But just tell us a bit about the podcast uh, that you do. Um, I know that I love doing a business program because I get to meet loads of people. I can see behind you the the breadth of people you've met on on your podcast through through that. Tell us about that and what you've learned from it. Well, the the learnings are, have just been amazing. It's, it's been the best MBA or education I've ever done. I suppose it's it's a willingness to interview these people as well. So. 
I, I started off, John, I was initially doing much like you were doing, not live, but interviewing startups. So the whole idea was interview startups on emerging trends and technologies, etc. And then about five years ago, so the show's six years old, but five years ago, I decided actually, if I felt what, what I'd actually found was so many of the stories were very similar. And when somebody hasn't committed their thoughts to page to to write down what they think they can often use kind of stories from other people etc as a way to communicate and i found it very interesting how authors or writers had a way of communicating that was kind of mostly theirs and that became interesting to me so because i kind of got two things out of that one was to read i read the book and i genuinely read the book every week i do my own research take notes on that then I interview them on it, which is a, like a second bite of the cherry of the learning. And then I edit the show myself, which is an absolute pain. <laughs> and the, but the editing is, is another third bite of the cherry to actually really cement the learnings. And even, you know, across the, the five, six years, if, if 5% or 10% sticks, you get a little nugget from each of them and then they all connect. So if you think about school, most of us have been taught to collect dots of information. We're collecting information. And what the show does for me is it helps me connect dots. So I kind of see metaphors and analogies and ways of thinking from diverse fields that really leads to a, a kind of a different way of thinking. Now, um, a man who made a huge impact on you, I gather, is a, a man many of us won't have heard of, but we'll have heard of his um, business, D. Hawk. Tell us about D. Hawk. He's written the foreword of your book, but I mean, he's an amazing thinker. Amazing, amazing person, and a real, you know, you we, we you know the the whole there's a story called the, the Roger Bannister effect. Roger Bannister is the guy who broke the four minute mile, and until he broke it, nobody thought it was possible. And for me, D. D Hawk has been one of these type of people who's kind of just shown me what's possible. And he he's the founder of Visa, and. I did a seven part documentary on his life. And the amazing thing is he's 93 now. He's writing a book currently and he's almost completely deaf. And when I interviewed him, he was almost completely deaf. So we had to find a technology that he could actually hear the questions. And the only way I could do it with the show with him was by phone. But it came out to be just this wonderful exploration of his life and his his philosophies. And he's an amazing, he reads a book, if I read a book a week, he reads one a day. And it's just part of his daily practice. He reads a book, he's, a, he's developed a way to read very, very quickly, which I don't have. <laughs> and he's just got this amazing way of viewing the world. But I met him through the show, John. And he, he said to me, Oh, you, you've, you've kind of had a similar life to me. And I was like, well, I didn't invent visa here. <laughs> but anyway, He's like, but, but his, his thing was about this idea of multiple lives within a life, uh, which is just an amazing way of thinking. And he's like, you should, you should probably write. And I was like, well, I have an ambition to write. And he goes, well, I'll help you. And uh, I'll pre-read it. I'll write a forward for it, if you like. And I was like, just blown away by the offer and the, the incredible forward he wrote, John. I don't know if you got a chance to read it. It's just I did beautiful. indeed, yeah. It's beautiful. fantastic. I'd recommend it to anybody. Yeah. So he's, he's an amazing book for anybody who's interested in called One From Many. So it's about, it's called Visa and the, the birth of the chaotic age. And chaotic is this word that he coined, which basically means order from chaos or chaos from order. And if you think of the times we're going through today, the pandemic, 
you know, there's, there's a recession, all this kind of chaos that we're experiencing. He, he says that's par for the course from any society or any part of nature is that everything kind of goes from a pattern of chaos to order to chaos again. And we're just experiencing chaos at the, at the moment, order will settle and the, the environment will be like the political or the business environment will be recalibrated. So this idea of going back to a new normal isn't quite the case. Things will just be changed again and that will be the way it will be going forward. So while change is normal, um, the need to adapt and to innovate to stay up with the change is, uh, is pretty imperative. I love the um, analogy in your book about the speed of change, where you use the uh, analogy about the drop of water in the, uh, in the center of the, of the stadium. I don't know if it was in the RDS or in Toulouse <laughs> Stadium you were talking about, but can you just explain that to people? Because I think it really gets across about the speed of change and how people need to adapt to it. So, so the, 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 the goal of this, the reason I share this, John, is to show people why change feels so fast. And there's this term called exponential change. And I, I am just genuinely curious when I come across something, I kind of go, what does that mean? And if you, if I ask people in workshops, for example, what do you think that means? They think it means really, really fast change, which it kind of does. But what it essentially is, is doublings in capability or doublings in speed. And it's very, very hard for the human brain to comprehend this. So this is a thought experiment that actually brings it to life. So as you can see here, this is a stadium. This is Wembley Stadium. And just imagine that you there's a referee or an official standing in the middle of the pitch. The, the, the referee has a dropper, so a water dropper like you would have for medicine or tinctures. And you've got the cheap seats. You've been right up the top there. You can hardly see the pitch. And the referee is going to drop one drop of water at an exponential rate, which is doubling. So it's going to go two four, eight, 16, 32, 64, et cetera. So these doublings. And the question is, if the official continues to double the number of drops every minute, how long do you think it would take to submerge the stadium? So for the entire stadium to fill watertight, fill with water. So, so when I ask this, many people will say a year, six months, couple of weeks, some people dare and say a day, and uh, the answer is 49 minutes, which is very, very difficult to understand, right? So this is just a drop of water, 2, 4, 8, 16. And it's, this is accurate, so it's a thought experiment. But that's not what I really focus on here, John, because the question I ask is, so imagine there's people sitting pitch side. How long do you think it would take for the water to reach and cover the heads of those people, right? So people pitch side. You're looking down, you're up on the top seat looking down, by the time you realize there's a problem and the water reaches their feet or covers their heads, it takes 45 minutes. So what that means is you have only got four minutes to escape. And the, the reason I share this experiment is this is what's behind so much of the disruption in organizations, in, in jobs as well, where people feel my job was secure and all of a sudden it's hit me out of the blue like a bag of hammers from orbit. Where did that come from? And, and the problem here is that if you take it metaphorically and go, if I'm up at the top seats looking down, the pitch is 7% full and 45 minutes have, have gone by, which means I've only four minutes. And in those moments of crisis, 
what happens to the human brain is blood is diverted from the forebrain, from this intelligent part of your brain, to your fists for fight and your legs for flight. So you become less intelligent and your decision making is flawed. This is why so many of us in moments of perhaps being made redundant or in joblessness or when disruption hits our organizations like a pandemic, for example, we don't react so well because we haven't prepared in advance. And what I propose in the book is a framework for understanding these waves of disruption that come, and most importantly, building capability before it's needed. And what that means is, even when a lot of things we do don't yield financial return, doesn't mean that they're broken, it doesn't mean that they haven't yielded some return, they sometimes yield a return in capability. So skill sets in an organization, for example, as an individual, you try to play the piano, you give it up, but you've done it for six months doesn't mean it was a waste of time. It means now you have a new framework or a new lens through which to see the world. And that becomes really, really useful. So this is why the speed of change catches organizations off guard. And it's running and it's behind so much of the change in organizations, for example, say computing in banks, for example, or in the legal industry, many roles where people were sitting there doing very technical, manual, rote, repeatable tasks can now be done by machines, by algorithms, and by artificial intelligence. So where somebody used to sit beside you is now a computer. The computer doesn't get sick. It doesn't have to drop the kids to school. It doesn't have to, you know, it doesn't have a few pints and come in late <laughs> a few days later. All these things is, is coming down the line. And I, and I propose we need to adapt and we need to be ready for this. And we need to also educate the incoming students and children about this adaptability that's required in this age of rapid change. Aidan, it's a really strong, um, it's a really strong uh, example there, that stadium one. I'm, I'm, thank you very much for uh, sharing that with us. Um, unfortunately, the kind of time has caught up with us. So I'd love to talk to you longer because the book um, is really readable and congratulations and well done on it. But it's really practical for people in business. There's lots of examples of companies who haven't adapted to change. There's really interesting bits about Nokia who were top of the heap and, uh, you know, they didn't change. If you want to say something briefly about Nokia, Aidan, just before we finish. It was a, the, the Nokia story really reveals, I mean, it, it's a classic case in disruption, but I take a different point of view on it, John, and it, it is that Nokia started off in the 1800s. It got its name from a village nearby, the Nokia village, and also a river called the Nokian Virtue River. And it started off as a textile business. So it started off producing paper and toilet paper, then it merged with a rubber factory, started to produce Wellington boots and gas masks for the army. Then it went into consumer electronics like TV. It understood cabling as an organization. And from that, it stumbled upon its killer product, the Nokia 3310. And it, there was an article, and it was when I was retiring from Rugby John. It was November 2007, front page cover of Forbes magazine. And I remember, well, the reason I remember it is I decided actually that was the industry for me. And the article read, one billion customers, can anyone catch the cell phone king? Only a few months later, the stock price started to plummet and it just plummeted over years until years later it was sold for, for a margin, tiny margin of its original share price 
to Microsoft who wanted to get into the telephony business. And what the reason was, was because they were so successful, they became defeated by victory. And what, I, what happens here is if you think about any organization or individual, when you're successful, you're focused and you take your eye off both threats and opportunities. And the really sad thing about the Nokia story was four years before the iPhone came out, so 2004 versus 2007 when the iPhone came out, engineers came forth in Nokia suggesting an iPad, suggesting a one button phone, a touchscreen phone, and suggesting an app store. And they were told to stay quiet that the company was making a fortune. Why would they rock the boat? Why would they deviate from the plan? And this is what happens so many times. And you see it time and time again in organization. I mentioned Nokia, I mentioned Blockbuster, I mentioned BlackBerry, all these organizations who were really successful got defeated by that success. Because when you're successful like that, you stop seeing all these opportunities and threats in the environment. Well, Aidan, look, uh, we were given 20 minutes. Uh, we've done half an hour, so I think <laughs> we better start sort of draw to a close. I could talk to you for ages more. I totally recommend the book. Aidan's uh, book, once again, is called Undispu Undisruptable, a mindset of permanent reinvention for individuals, organizations, and life. Uh, so just get online and get a copy. And interestingly, one of the, uh, you know, everything's been disrupted by Amazon, for example. And I think one of the things that I was surprised to see, Aidan, was that uh, Jeff Bezos predicts that Amazon won't be there in maybe 30 years time because someone will have gone to eat their lunch as well. So I think that's a kind of a salutary lesson for us all in business that we can't afford to be in any way um, complacent. I don't know if there's something you'd like to say, Aidan, just to wrap up. Just that, that it's a positive book, that um, it, it, it brings you on the journey to show you, look, this is what's possible if you take your eye off constant education and constantly building capabilities before they're needed. The key is before they're needed, because when they're needed, you're in that moment of crisis, your brain changes and you make flawed decisions. And I think one of the main things I talk about in the book is this idea, I call it Kintsugi thinking which Kintsugi is this ancient Japanese art where you see the pottery smashed and then you see this joinery in between. So it's, it's put back together, but they put golden lacquer between the cracks. And what they're doing is celebrating the cracks. And I think we've lost that as we grow as adults, we lose that mindset that actually the way you learn is by making mistakes. As long as you don't continually make the same mistakes over and over again, and that is a really important thing because invention or innovation or change and failure are inseparable twins. You can't have one without the other. In a way, we fail our way towards success. And we need to change our mindset about that and be aware of the fear of that change and the, the fear of judgment as well, because many times we don't make the change because we fear what others will say. And one of the most liberating things to do is not give a crap about what other people think about you. Because in this time of change, the most adaptive people are the ones who are going to be the most happy and most successful. The Bottom Line on KCLR with John Purcell. Brought to you with thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants. Now offering a complete life and pensions advisory service to business. www.omf.ie